Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today's October the 23rd, 2017, and this is episode 2,102 of the Survival Podcast. 2,102. It is a Monday, and we're back to our... Regularly scheduled, I'm sorry, regularly scheduled programming. And uh, I had a great trip. I uh, left you guys with a couple of rewinds last week, actually three, as I'm getting ready for the fall workshop, and I took some time off to go slay Bambi and to go slay Wilbur. And I uh, was able to actually do both. And I was, out, I was out doe hunting, and several people pointed out, but Bambi was a boy, it's just the same. I'm going to shoot Bambi in the face. That means I'm going to go... I'm going to go ethically harvest a deer is what it really means. It's just to torque off vegetarians and the like. Anyway, we're going to talk about my hunt today a little bit. I'm going to give you a bit of an after-action review. And a lot of questions came up when I was posting things on Facebook from the place I was hunting uh, about a lot of different things like, is baiting deer unethical? And is, do you always hunt deer over bait? And what does that even mean? And the pros and cons of hunting on what people are calling a game ranch. And what that means. And making biltong with wild hogs. Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent. I mean, who knows what former president that's from. Uh, I'll tell you why it wouldn't be prudent. Uh, I have questions on my favorite way to cook wild boar. Uh, cooking deer hearts and hearts in general. And how do you get a model sa a Savage Model 10 rifle, 308 for 250 bucks? Is that even doable anymore, given I've had mine for like 12 years? Yeah, it is, and I'll tell you how. Now, moving on to other stuff that came in, you know, the typical way for the show, we're gonna have, we have a question on how and where to buy cryptocurrency as a beginner, and how do you get enough knowledge to be ready to start using cryptocurrency and start participating in cryptocurrency, because I always say, don't just jump in with both feet, learn about it first, and maybe I'm not being completely clear on what I mean by that, so I'll try to clear that up today. Moving on from there, we have a question on, you know, how do you choose between paying for some consulting on your homestead or your permaculture project or whatever, and or, or just plant a bunch of shit and see what grows. Like, how do you make that determination? So I'll talk about, look, just a, a, a basic mathematical ROI calculation about how you make that determination. Um, another, we have a, a listener that has a new, simple, non-toxic way to purge unwanted insects from your home and make it smell good, too. Uh, we have an article on UBI, which is Universal Basic Income, and the threat of tyranny that it represents. Question on feeding cats milk and eggs. And how business model innovation applies to the power industry. And next in my notes, next to business model innovation, I have in parentheses the word disruption. It's dis Business model innovation is disruption. If you don't understand that uh, right now, You will when we talk about it. And if you listen to the uh, video that's a little bit over an hour long uh, that goes along with that, uh, you really will understand it by a, a guy named Tony Siba. I think this guy switched on. He's actually more optimistic about the timeline and the movement of things like solar, electric cars, uh, automation, etc. than I am. A little further ahead of the curve than I am on speed, But he has the data to back it up. I still think he's maybe a little optimistic, but I'm talking a couple of years. And as you'll see when we talk about this, it don't really matter if it's going to be 2021 or 2023. 
when we disagree on what date that is. Because it, 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 it's still really, really soon and a lot sooner than most people think. It's New York City. It's 1900. You look out on Main Street and you see about 100 different vehicles. 100 different vehicles on Main Street, New York City, the year 1900. All these vehicles are being pulled by donkeys and horses. And in the middle of that picture, you see one of these newfangled horseless carriages, and you say, that's just a fad. That's where we are with a lot of things that are so far past where we were in 1900, but people have the blinders on because this time we are the horses. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. I always, with any kind of an ailment, chronic condition, pain, ache, a preventative, I always at least consider herbs first. I believe that we were given all of the wonderful things on this planet by our creation. You can take that however you want to. I don't think it really matters. I don't care if you're a pure evolutionist, if you're a pure theist, if you're a deist like myself. I think that all of us can share that ideal, that through the, the amazing world that is our planet and our interaction with it, we were given this incredible gift of if there's something that goes wrong, there's a way to balance it out of nature. And we haven't discovered all of those ways yet, but we've discovered a lot of them. And herbs are relatively safe and easy to use, and the stuff you get from Western Botanicals will fall into that category. And real people will answer the phone and answer your questions and help you make good decisions. They're a company with their entire company, including the customer service department, located in Utah, not New Delhi. And as I always say, real people that really care about you. And they give out a great discount membership program for free to members of the MSB for the first year, discounted by 50% uh, the year after that, that will more than pay for, you know, the discount membership pays for itself. But the one you get for free pays for the whole MSB for a year. It's worth 50 bucks. Next up, uh, Self-Reliance Magazine. I'm really stoked about this new magazine coming out of the folks over at Backwoods Home, uh, kind of taking things forward. I did just get my last edition of Backwoods Home Magazine uh, from Dave Duffy and the crew. That's actually going to stick around as an online version. But if you want something that comes to your house, kind of old school, to think of it that way, you know, that now when a magazine comes to your house, that's old. Uh, but the, the, quarterly, the quarterly they're doing with Self-Reliance Magazine is the kind of thing you kind of want still in print, at least for now, man. And they started that out as an online publication and moved into an offline publication, making the adjustments for the new world, but not forgetting the core of what built and made Backwoods Home a great magazine. That is homesteading. That is do-it-yourself. That is processing a deer. That is growing a garden. All of that good stuff and more. You'll find it at Self-Reliance Magazine. You've got to check them out. And if you do elect to subscribe, remember you get a discount in the MSB of the benefits area, which will be another way to help pay for your membership and get a great magazine from a great sponsor that's been with us for a long time. Just really think of it as a name change. Next up, let's look at the year 66. The year 66 A.D., as we take a walk through history, uh, in the year 66 A.D., we have the Great Jewish Revolt, contributed by David Verne. Judea had never been a completely pacified province, but this year, all hell breaks loose. Florus, the Roman governor, orders Roman soldiers to steal 17 talents of gold, or about 1,275 pounds, from the temple in Jerusalem to pay for Nero's increased spending habits. 
Outraged, the Jewish populace sparks riots across the city, and several rebel factions seizes the opportunity to kill the Roman garrison and take control of Jerusalem. The Sicarii, an extremist splinter faction of the Zealots, surprises the Romans at the clifftop fortress of Masada and takes control of the surrounding area. The various rebel factions begin purging any Romans or Greeks living in Judea, along with Jews seen as collaborators. The Roman legit in Syria, Gallus, mobilizes 30,000 soldiers to restore order. After recapturing Galilee and marching within sight of Jerusalem, they withdraw and begin marching back towards the coast. As they pass, as at the pass at Beth, Berth Horon, uh, they were ambushed by the rebels. 6,000 Romans were killed. Gallus managed to escape by abandoning his army. The rebels captured several Roman artillery pieces, and the greatest disgrace of all, the eagle standard of the 12th full manata uh, was captured, disgracing the legion until the unit redeemed itself around a century later. The victory convinced many volunteers to join the rebel cause. My take by David Verne. This revolt was as much a civil war between the Jews as it was a rebellion, with some Jews happy with Roman rule, while others were not. The resistance fighters themselves weren't united with the different factions, hating each other as, each other as much as they hated the Romans. The Sicarii, named after the Roman word for dagger, were the most extreme group and saw any talk of even trying to negotiate a peace agreement with the Romans as treason. They would conceal daggers and cloaks and would kill their enemies in public spaces, blending into the crowd to escape. They were one of the first organized assassination units. Okay, so... The greatest power of the world is interfering with the religious beliefs and with the right to self-organize with a group of people in the Middle East. And when they make a huge mistake, like stealing a bunch of stuff, it mobilizes the rebels who unite despite hating each other, who kill a whole bunch of the foreign invaders and, of course, are labeled terrorists and assassins. I'm not going to say shit, okay? I'm not going to say shit. I'm just going to let you figure that out for yourself. And if you can't, I, I, I just don't know what to tell you. I just... And you think anything we're dealing with is new? Really? This is the year 66 AD. Um, close to 2,000 years ago. 1970 years ago. Something like that. Yeah... All right, so let's move on from there and uh, remind you real quick, if you like this show and you want to support the work that we do, please consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, all you got to do is go to the survivalpodcast.com. You'll see a tab that says Members, or you'll see the Member Support Brigade banner. You click on that, it'll tell you how to sign up. You can sign up with credit card online through PayPal or Stripe. You can sign up with cryptocurrency. You can pay by cash, check, or money order through snail mail, and I'll even take barter if you make me an offer. And here's what you'll get. For $50 a year, you'll get enough discounts that you'll probably put $150 to $200 back in your pocket buying some stuff you were going to buy anyway. Plus, you'll get a bunch of great content and help support the show that you love. I call that a good deal. I call that a win-win-win. How's that a win-win-win? Well, I win because I get to keep doing what I do because I make money. You win because even though you spend money with me, you get your money back. Where's the third win? The companies that offer you discounts get business from you that they wouldn't have gotten. That's called incremental revenue. That's a triple win, 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 win. That's what the MSB is. If you're not a member yet, consider joining. And remember, it's like 18 cents an episode. 
You think the show's worth that? Consider joining and then take all of the benefits as icing on the cake, so to say. All right, before I get into your stuff, I want to remind you that we are having the launch of Crypto Gulch tomorrow. What I'm going to do is anybody that's on the Crypto Gulch email list, I'm going to send the link out about 30 minutes before the launch time of 12 Central Standard Time tomorrow. Ben Fitz over at Crypto Gulch is only taking 20 customers in this launch. If you're not on that list yet, you probably don't know much about Crypto Gulch, and you probably shouldn't worry about it. I I'm serious. Like We're going to get these first 20 customers running, and then we're going to do this again. So don't panic or anything, but if you want to be in that first group tomorrow, noon, central time, I'll put out the link, and I'll put out a blog post at noon, but again, I'm going to email everybody on the list about 45 minutes earlier than that. That way you'll have the link before it goes to the blog, and you won't be going there directly and hitting F5 and circumventing my affiliate link because I'd like my 5% for telling you about it, please. That's my shameless promotion on it. Anyway, uh, Crypto Gold is going to be cool. I won't say anything about it because we do have some other questions about crypto uh, later in the show. I want to get into kind of the AAR, I guess, your af after-action review for your civilian types uh, on my hunt and some questions about it. I want to start out with... Two questions that I've got before I give you like what happened, because I think it will help answer them and it will dispel some misconceptions. So I posted a picture the first night I was out, and I was sitting up in this really beautiful deer stand, and uh, there was a, a feeder out about a hundred yards out. There's this deer underneath the feeder. It's this beautiful uh, eight-point buck. I mean. You know, eight points vary. You can have an eight-pointer. It's a little bitty, kind of spindly thing. And you can have, like, an eight-pointer that is a beautiful buck. This was a beautiful eight-pointer. Really thick beams, heavy-bodied, mature deer, really high points. Didn't show up that well on the iPhone camera at that distance, but you could see there's a deer there. And I posted a thing that said, you know, eight-pointer under the feeder, I, I think he knows I'm not allowed to shoot him, which I, I think that might be the case. And that same night, I saw a gorgeous fallow buck. A fallow is a European deer. I saw a fallow doe uh, that they were not letting. And they, they a lot of times, they'll let you shoot exotic does down at this place or exotic bucks for extra fees. And sometimes they don't because they, they manage the population. So it's beautiful white fallow doe. I mean, I would have popped her in a heartbeat. She did not come to the feeder. She showed up out to my left in kind of an open Arroyo-type area, just feeding and, and going through. And I also saw a few other bucks that night. A couple other bucks came into the feeder briefly and left, and a couple other bucks came, bucks came out on a road that I could see also off to my east, kind of where that fallow doe was. Keep that in mind, right? So that's, that's baiting, right? And I'll, I'll get into this in a second, but we actually had to move hunters off of the typical stands and feeders Because the does were not coming to the feeders. All right? So the whole thing with baiting deer, and I think this is the misconception, when you grow up somewhere and something's illegal, you naturally think it's bad. And I want you to think about how that correlates to other things that maybe you don't think are bad, even though they're still illegal where you live. Most of America, and I would say the vast majority of Americans, kind of feel like the whole making cannabis illegal thing is dumb at this point. And putting people in jail causing any kind of problems with anybody for smoking some pot is just stupid. And we shouldn't be doing it. And I think the majority's there. But I grew up as a kid, I thought anybody that smoked pot was like really a bad person because it was illegal. 
I never considered whether or not it was actually immoral, just it was illegal and only bad people do illegal things. I think the other thing, though, is when you get into the world of like hunting or fishing. For instance, where I grew up in Pennsylvania, it was illegal to throw a cast net. So you have these visions of some guy throwing a cast net and pulling out like 40 largemouth bass with it or something. It just doesn't happen. And since you don't ever see it used, you don't know how it actually works. You just know that since it's illegal, it must be bad. Deer feeders are used on these ranches. These, and I want to get into the whole ranch thing in a second, but people think of like a high fence game ranch as like a canned hunt. The place I hunted was 25,000 acres. It's under high fence, so they can effectively manage it without having, and they're in a part of Texas with a lot of exotic game that's still running wild and free range that they don't really want there. And then that way they also, you know, help keep people out as well. So there's, there's, there's a lot to that other than just keeping the animals in, but they're also, they do bring animals in. And they do make investments in those animals, including bringing in white-tailed deer for the genetics, including bringing in certain exotics that they do want there. And, like, they brought in two fallow bucks that they're not going to allow to be shot this year, and that's why they don't want the does shot, because they want their genetics there. And these are wild animals. They do not hang out with you. They do not walk up to you and eat your sandwich out of your hand. They do not like people. And a lot of them, when they do come into the feeders, they come in after dark or before first light. And when the sun comes up, by the time you can see the shoot, they're gone. All right, so there's a whole misconception because, you know, baiting is illegal, that it must be a bad thing or it must work like magic. It depends. Where are you? If you're on 1,000 acres with 200 deer shoved onto it like cattle and there's not enough food for them, a feeder goes off, they run in like moths to a, to a lamp. And I've seen deer in Texas on even big operations. When the feeder goes off, they'll run in at a time of the year where there's not a lot of feed. Through most of the year, or a year like this year where you got a lot of rain, the feeder is just another feature on the landscape to those deer. And when you're out hunting does, and you're in the pre-rut, and the bucks are all starting to bachelor herd up before they break up and go off individually and fight each other, and they're kind of keyed up and they're ready to breed and the does aren't, and the feeder goes off, and there's like four or five bucks there, and there's a doe, and she doesn't really want anything to do with a bunch of randy bucks right now, she doesn't go there. Got it? So it's, it, it all depends on what you're hunting, when you're hunting it, and what's going on. The main reason they use these feeders is because they are selling to trophy hunters. That's, that is the people that pay the highest bills. And then there's a whole bunch of people like me that just want to go hunting. And we kind of fall into a whole different world. But with the trophy hunter... By scheduling the hunts at the right time of year when they timed and patterned the deer, bucks are coming to the feeders, it gives the guide the opportunity to really look a deer over and say, that deer falls into what you've paid to hunt for. I'm not exactly a fan of that, but I don't fault it because it's a big part of how these places pay their bills. But if you think you can just set up a deer feeder and it's like magic, you'll be able to shoot a deer anytime you want to, that's not how it works. Now, if you do it with certain procedures and certain concepts, it can be a very effective method. It can be very reliable. But over time, its effectiveness dwindles as the ones that you shoot off it are the ones that come in during shooting time, leaving behind the genetics of the ones that are smarter. And it, it's, it's not this, it's not like 
go into a zoo and shoot an animal in a cage the way people seem to make it out. It's just not. So with that in mind, let me give you what happened for me. So first night I'm out, kind of told you I saw really it was a great sit. I saw these beautiful animals, highly alert. These were not like milling around and hanging out. Ironically, the white-tailed bucks that aren't being hunted yet, they were milling around. The one bedded down 10 feet from the feeder and sat there and ate corn off the ground. The fallow deer that can be shot any time of year, they were not about that. The big buck came in way close to dark, way close to dark. The uh, the white fallow doe that I really wanted to shoot for the meat because they're great eating, and I wanted to hide off of that thing, and I just wasn't allowed to. That deer was like on hyper-razor alert the entire time that she was there. And she wasn't there for very long. But it was a wash. There was nothing that was legal for me to shoot that showed up. And so the next morning I go out. The next morning I saw three beautiful eight-point bucks that came into the feeder. One uh, they were very difficult to see. I have some video that eventually I'll get up from a regular, like a... a, a a regular camcorder camera that has much better zoom. But it's so dark, even on that camera with the low-light function, you can barely see them, but they're beautiful deer. And by the time it was light, those deer were gone. There was one doe with that group that stayed back in the tree line. She was in range, but she wasn't clear for a shot. She would not come out. She was just like, I'm not doing it. And so I, I couldn't get a clean shot at her, so I didn't take a shot. That was all I saw that morning until the guides came to pick me up because they drop you off and see you later. When they came to pick me up, they they bounced two does, and they they ran like hell. There was no getting a shot at them. They were 150 yards out. But I could tell by the way they ran and the size of their bodies that they were doe, and they ducked into the, the brush, and they were gone. Okay. Those two deer were sitting 150, 200 yards from that feeder and had no intention to come near it because that group of bachelor bucks was hanging out there. I saw no exotics. Nobody was having does come in to the even the guys that were shooting them could be dead some people. There was like fourteen hunters in this this camp. Again, twenty five thousand acre ranch. You don't even near each other. You better better hear somebody shoot when they shoot. But there was a few does taken, but almost all of them were shot in ways I've shot deer there before. Yeah, there's a feeder there, but two hundred yards out on that tree line, you see that deer working along. Again, it's just another feature in the landscape. So since the bucks were kind of keying in on the feeders and I was pushing the does away, the guys worked really hard that day. So we came in about 10 o'clock in the morning, and they were out all day looking for spots. And they set up just a chair and like a ground blind for us. Basically, it wasn't even a blind. It was more like, here's some bush you can hide in. And you know, you're, you're, you're now you're out there hunting the way people think of as real hunting. Guess what? It was the most effective night we had when people weren't anywhere near the feeders. And that was the night I shot my doe. So I'm, I'm out watching, like, there was like three different tree lines that kind of converged and had all these crossings and stuff, but there was breaks in between them where any way that one deer wanted to get from one tree group to another group of, and these are like all post oaks and stuff like that, uh, and junipers and, and mesquites and all, that if they wanted to get from one to the other, they would have to cross the field. And you could see in one direction like 300 yards and a couple others like 75, 150, like that. So I'm sitting there, and it's getting later and later in the evening, and it's getting kind of that prime time thing. And I look way out like 300 yards out, and I see a bunch of black things moving. And I think pigs, 
Pigs, yes, pigs. And I'm thinking, I get you get within 250 yards, even without it. I didn't have a dead solid rest, but you know, I get down on one knee or whatever, sit down or whatever, lay my pack down, whatever I had to do. Like you guys get within 250 yards, you're dead. Well, I throw the scope up to look at them, and this so the, the the distances on these ranches is really hard to get your head around. And they were closer than I thought they were, and they were turkeys. There was like a dozen turkeys hanging out. They got a little closer, but they stayed way out there. And you're sitting around, you're looking, you're waiting. And finally I'm like, I wonder what the turkeys are doing. So I take my rifle, I put the scope up, and I'm just watching them through the rifle scope. And I watch them for about two or three minutes, and I get that feeling. The hackles on the back of your neck, if you've never hunted, you don't understand this. There is a, there is a sixth sense, that I don't believe hunters have, I believe humans have, that you know when something's looking at you. You just know. And the hairs on my arm go up, and the hair on the back of my neck goes up, and I know there's something looking at me. And I, I bring my eye off the scope, and I look over to the right, and there's a doe, and there's a clump of brush about 50 yards away, and she's coming out from behind that clump. When I looked, she was, she was locked in on me but couldn't figure out what I was. I was wearing gear more like I wear when I go archery hunting. I have like kind of this like half a ghillie suit, I guess you would call it. But when I looked off that scope, We made eye contact. At 50 yards, they can see your And when they see your eyes, they're gone. I expected her to turn backwards. And if she did, she would have got away. Instead, she broke and ran across, crossing me at 50 yards. Metal computer clicked in, led her with the scope, bam, heart shot her at 50 yards. And she ran like 60, 70 yards, heart shot. And I've got a picture that I put on Facebook of the heart blown in half. There was a blood trail... It was a blood path. It was a foot wide, solid red. It looked like somebody took a five gallon bucket and was just shaking it off of uh, like a big brush or something and painted a path. I, I, I don't even know how there was any deer blood left in this deer. I went out and got her. She's a nice young, you know, one and a half year old doe, which down here is like, you know, an 80, 90 pound deer. And uh, brought her in that night. So that was that night. So that leaves me with one more day to hunt. I'm back in a blind. Yes, there's a feeder. The feeder goes off. And when the feeder goes off in the morning, two beautiful bucks come out. A young 10-point, like he needs time to really become that trophy that they want him to become, and another gorgeous 8-pointer. By the way, I'm like five miles from where I hunted the last time. That's how big this place is. And I'm watching them a little bit here and there, and it's really dark. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to see them, and I see... Silhouette, because I can actually see the feeder area better than where I'm sitting, like just 10, 15 feet out. Because the sun's coming up and it's hitting out there, but it's shadowed back where I'm at. And I, I see this silhouette of a deer come out. And I look, and her head's just high enough that I can silhouette her head, and it's bald. She's a doe. She's a big doe. And she's going to pass me at like 15 yards. And so I have a, a .357 SIG with me, and I'm, gonna shoot, I'm like, this is great. I'm going to shoot my deer with a pistol. And just as she comes out from the clump enough where I'm, I'm about to, to, to draw down on her, I look behind her and I see more deer, and they're little. So I wait a little bit. As she comes out, even though it's pretty dark still, I look and I can see little speckle ass spots on these fawns. So she's got two fawns with her that are still, still in spot. And I just put the gun away. I'm not shooting a doe with spotted fawns. I'm not doing it. 
and she walked right past me at about 15 yards. She knew something was up. She came around the brush that was like off to my right, like off to my right front angle. Like if you take your arm and go 45 degrees out from yourself and cut behind that to where she's like a 90 degree angle from me and I'm in this blind. And at this point, she's like 20 feet away and she's sniffing the air. She knows something's not right. She has that feeling I had the night before. Something's here, but I don't know what it is. And deer can't just run every time they think something's wrong or they're going to run into something else that's dangerous, like a mountain lion or a bobcat or coyotes, especially when they got their spotted fawns. So she kind of like sniffs around, and she meanders off, and she goes. These, now the sun starts coming up more and more. Now I can get a good look at these two bucks. So I check them out a couple times with my binoculars, and I'm waiting for another doe to show up. It's getting a little bit later in the morning. It's not, you know, it's still two hours left before they're going to come get me, but I'm thinking it's past that magic time that I'm probably not going to get another animal. And all of a sudden I look, and here comes a hog, and he's about 60 yards out, and he's, he's nowhere near the feeder. He's just walking through the open. He's heading somewhere. He's just on his way somewhere. And so I get the gun up, and I start following him, and I'm waiting for him to stop because I like to shoot hogs like right behind the ear, break their neck or break their brain pan open. That way they don't go nowhere. And he's, he's just, he, again, he's not running, but he's at a steady walk. Boom, 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 Just like pigs do, that kind of bouncing walk. And he's about 10 feet to where he's going to go behind brush, so the hell with the headshot. Switched over, high shoulder shot, bam. And she, he made one squeal and went down like a piece of dynamite went off in him. Never even kicked. Just dead. I hung out for a couple more hours, never saw anything else after that shot. Except a turkey that flew down out of a tree when I made that shot and hung out with me, trying to figure out what I was in the blind, and then just walking around eating acorns and stuff like that. So that was my experience. So that's not what people think of when they think of a game ranch, that that's what the hunting's like. They, they watch the TV, and the TV shows the feeder go off, and like a hundred deer running. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen, I'm saying... Depending on what you're hunting and where you're hunting it, it changes. And, and, and to me, that was as much real hunting as any hunting I've ever done. Those were two shots that weren't long. I've had to make long shots. I've made 250, 300-yard shots at this place in the past. But both shots were on moving game. The doe was, I'm proud of that shot. I, that, that was like shooting a rabbit with a shotgun was what that was like. I mean, to hit a, a deer in the heart, on a, and she was in a full run a panicked full run, um, and to make that shot with a scoped rifle, sitting in a metal chair and having to make that swing, that was a difficult shot. I would, su I would submit to you most people wouldn't have made that shot. They either would have taken it or they would have missed or they would have hit her far back without leading her far enough. So that was difficult. And then the pig, if I had looked down to scratch my arm for 10 seconds... He would have went through it and I'd have never seen him. If I would have probably looked away for five, by the time I would have, oh, there's a pig, got the gun up, he would have been gone. So that was, you had to instantly, that's a, that's that animal is worth taking. I'm going to take it. He's not going to stop, bang. And that had to happen in about four seconds in your head. So that's what it can be like, depending on where you hunt. The pros and cons, I mean, the big pros to hunting these game ranches and things like that, assuming you're hunting a place like I'm talking about, very large operation instead of some kind of canned hunt shit, is even though it is like that, the people live there, they know the game, and they do their best to put you on it, and it helps save time. You're not going to spend four days hiking through the mountains trying to locate an animal. 
They, they are there, and they kind of know the areas they hang out in. Um, and they do a lot of work for you. I mean, they pattern the animals, they pick you up, they, you know, they give you a place to stay, all of that. The cause art can be kind of expensive. However, in this case, my hunt was for two does, 600 bucks. It's not expensive. You can't get a deer lease anywhere for that. And most people had success. Of the 14 hunters, all but two took something. Most got two deer. Most got two deer. Several did take some exotics they were allowed to take and they were willing to pay for them. Um, the two guys that didn't were an old man and his son, and they were not in separate blinds. They were together at all times. Had they split up, one of them probably would have taken something. But since they, they paired up, and I think they were just an old man that wanted to go hunting with his son. It was probably, his son was probably about my age, to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. I think they just wanted to be out there together, and they were happy. So I think the other con is you don't know what you're going to get until you go to a place. I first went to this place. It's called the West Kerr Ranch in uh, 2004, I guess. So that's 13 years ago. And I've been back. This was my fourth trip. That tells you I like what I found. I've been to other places. Not so much. So There you go. That, that's that. Uh, some other questions that came up when I posted that stuff that were quick and easy to answer, but I thought would be good to answer here. Can you make biltong out of wild hogs? You can do anything. But should you do it, I think is a better question. The answer is, I don't think so. Um, biltong is traditionally made with red meats. Buffalo, cows, deers, antelopes, okay? Giraffes, which are giant antelopes, by the way. It's, it's an African thing. To, to, a way to preserve bush meat, it was, it was developed about 300 years ago, 200-ish years ago, by the Dutch boars in South Africa. Again, it's you 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 dredge the, the dredge the meat, not dredge drench, but dredge or spray the meat with, with apple cider vinegar. You coat it with black pepper, coriander, and salt, and you hang it up in a low humidity environment out of the sun before air conditioned rooms. That meant in the shade, in the bush, in the dry season, and it cures in about a week or less. That's what it is. Okay, the problem with doing it with a pig. Or any animal that can harbor trichinosis is if it's wild, there is a significant risk that it does have trichinosis. And humans, like all primates, can also get trichinosis. Um, trichinosis is little worms. They form little cysts. It's very difficult to treat. It can result in life-altering consequences, and it can be fatal. I just don't mess with that. You can get tapeworms from beef that's not been properly cared for, but tapeworm can be easily gotten rid of, and it ain't that big of a deal. When you talk about trichinosis worms, you're talking about things that are seriously threatening to your health. That also means I'm not going to be making out of rabbit. Uh, I'm not going to be making out of raccoon. I wouldn't make it out of bear. Bear also can. So when I'm going to make biltong, I need a couple things to be uh, lined up. One, I need to be able to use thick cuts of meat. So, I mean, an inch by an inch. And if I can't do that, it's not worth making biltong. Okay? Um, number two, I need a significant amount of meat. It's, it's like making it out of rabbit, even if it's perfectly safe, it, it just doesn't make any sense. It, it, you, you, you know, I've got 11 pounds hanging behind me. It probably weighs two and a half pounds an ounce of the done. So, I mean, if you're talking, you make it out of a squirrel or a rabbit, it just shrivel up to wouldn't be worth it. So, I'd be able to be thick. 
It's got to be able to be in significant quantity, so that I can, you know, I'm talking three or four pounds at least. It has to be an animal that does not harbor any type of serious parasite that needs cooking to kill it. And if that all lines up, then it's it's fine for making biltong. But again, traditionally, red meats, uh, buffalo, uh, things like that. Deer make deer makes excellent biltong. Antelope makes excellent biltong. Uh, American buffalo bison makes excellent biltong. Beef makes excellent biltong. So that's what I'm going to advise you on the biltong. Uh, I've been asked my favorite way to cook wild boar. I cook it like pork. There's nothing special about it. It's just pig. So pork chops, you know, um, a lot of times I'll cut basically one inch thick. They look like steaks out of the hams. And I just treat those like pork chops. I mean, I'll take the shanks off pork, and they, those are... Fantastic, slow cooked, and just the same way you saw me recently do with the shanks off of venison. Um, but it's pork. I'll take a whole back leg or a whole front quarter and throw it in the smoker. Now, I do have one thing I like to do with feral hog, and they're about the right size, and your smaller, like homestead hogs and all, would work well for this because the loin off of like a factory pig is huge. It's like you can barely get two hands around it. Sometimes you can't. But the loin off of a feral hog, it's maybe a little bit bigger. Of a, it's a big one, or maybe even smaller if it's a small pig, off of a deer, right? It's it's a it's a relatively small. And I'm talking say loin. I'm talking about on a on a cow, where your ribeyes and your New York strips come from. So if you reach around and feel your backbone, and just off your backbone, you feel a pretty good muscle group there. You know, below your ribs, even going all the way down to your pelvis, along your backbone, and then up to where your ribs are, you, there's, you can tell there's muscle there, all right, with the ribs, and it, it comes down, and it makes a tube-shaped, very long thing. We call that back straps or loins, and that's coming from all the way up, just about where it joins the neck, all the way down to just above the pelvis, where you get to what you call a rump roast. That whole piece is called the back strap, and again, off a of, off of a steer. That's your ribeye. Your ribeye is from the ribs up to the neck, okay? And then your New York strip is from the ribs down to the pelvis. And, of course, on the inside is your tenderloin. And if you have a, a, a big cow and you cut that bone out altogether, you get a porterhouse steak where you have the tenderloin on one side or a filet mignon on one side and the New York strip on the other. So that's the piece of meat I'm talking about. So just that long strip, I usually bone that out. Most hunters do. And I'll, I, I, when I cook a deer that way, I leave it long. I leave basically the entire rib piece is one, and then the entire lower piece, the entire New York strip piece is another, and I cook that thing whole, like a big steak, because it's about the right thickness, and cutting it up doesn't make sense to me anymore. When I do a pig, I might do that. The other thing I'll do with it, I'll cut it in about one-inch thick slices, the whole thing, from, from, tip, from tip to tip, right? And I put a hole in it with a knife. And into that hole, I insert about a quarter of a jalapeno pepper. And I make a rub. And I can't give you the, 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 the recipe because it's a little different every time. But you know, it's salt, it's pepper, it's garlic, it's onion, it's a little bit of cumin, a little bit of paprika, a little bit of cayenne, right? It's something like that. Every time I make stuff like this, I just like open my spice drawers and I just start picking stuff out based on how I feel that day. So I make a nice rub for that. And I, I coat it really nice in that. And I mix it in a bowl with those peppers stuck in it. And I'll sit that in the refrigerator and let it sit all day. So that those 
seasonings have a chance to work into that meat. And then I'll take them out, nice and cold, so they, they kind of stiff when they're cold. Meat's easiest to work with the colder it is. And I'll wrap those with a piece of bacon and put a toothpick through them. And then I'll mix up a sauce. Again, I can't give you the recipe because it's whatever is available at that time. But I'll usually use a little bit of barbecue sauce of some sort as a base, some hot sauce, you know, maybe a little bit of soy sauce, a little bit of beer to thin it out, and take it toward the Asian side of things, maybe a little bit of uh, Asian hot sauce or something like that. And I'll not put that on them yet. And I'll grill them until the bacon starts to render down and get a little bit toward the crispy side. You can't get it all the way crispy because the pork will overcook. And then I'll brush it with that sauce like a baste and finish it up. You don't want that sauce. It's got sugar in it. It'll burn. Sometimes I'll add a little mirror into it, which is a sweet and sake, to take it to that Asian side. Take that out, and I'll hit that with uh, toasted sesame seeds and let it cool a little bit and sticky up. Those are just incredible. And you can do that with regular pork, um, but I recommend if you're buying it like from a supermarket, buy a pork tenderloin, which again is like the filet mignon of the pig. Cut your little thin pieces off the end, just fry them up, do something with them, and when you get that nice round part, that's about the right size. Trying to do it with a pork loin, it, which is where you know you get your loin chops from, it's just too big off of a commercial pig. So that's one of my ways to do wild boar. I was also asked about deer hearts. Uh, I'm a big evangelist on using all of the animals that you can. I have tried to like liver. I don't. You can tell me to soak it in milk. You can tell me to soak it in water. You can tell me to cook it fresh. You can tell me to do... It sucks. It's liver. It tastes like liver. I don't like liver. Heart is not liver. Heart is heart. Heart is a muscle, not a shit filter, which is what livers and kidneys and stuff like that are. They filter toxins from your body, where a heart is a muscle that pumps blood. To clean a deer heart or any heart, I cut it in half, just split it in half with a knife, and take a look at it. And you'll real quick figure out there's these little tendons and ventricles and stuff like that. You cut all that out, cut all the arteries and stuff off the top, and it'll be a fat cap across the top. Cut that off, and then cut it into strips. Salt, pepper, garlic, throw it on the grill, cook it medium until it's just a little bit pink inside, or throw it in a cast iron skillet really hot, hot and fast. Do not cook it to well done. That's all you got to do. It's fantastic. I have a tradition. Uh, I take my heart and I put it on the grill at my deer camp from a deer. If I get multiple deer, I only do one because I like to bring them home. This time, I couldn't do it. I literally blew the heart up in this animal with the shot that I took on her. Uh, another hunter was kind enough to give me a heart from his deer, and I cooked it on the grill down there for them, and they liked it. But they said it has a little bit of a, like an irony an irony, tinny, metallic taste to it. And I said, well, that is because it's a heart, and it's very much highly highly full of oxygenated blood. And, of course, blood cells are high in iron. And for obvious reasons, there's a lot of blood in heart muscle. And it's not blood in, like when you cut uh, a steak, if you have had, the animal hasn't been well bled, it will bleed out it's a little bit more locked up in that muscle. And that can give it a little bit of a metallic taste. If you want to get rid of that, you take, you do everything I said, you throw it in a, just a standard salt sugar brine like you would for something you're going to smoke on, like a pork shoulder you're going to smoke or a chicken you're going to cook. You put it in there for a couple hours, it'll leach some, some of that out, it'll tender it up, but still don't overcook it, hot and fast, leave it medium. It's fantastic. 
And it's not that, one deer heart doesn't make that much. I mean, it's kind of a snack before a main meal. Uh, poultry hearts, like chicken, quail, and stuff, a lot of times I just cook those whole. I don't worry about taking them apart or anything like that. But deer heart, lamb heart, sheep heart, pig heart, all that stuff gets cut up and cooked like that. Man, it's fantastic. Your pig, wild pig, you do have to cook it to 160 degrees to be safe. You just have to. Because trichinosis sucks. If you doubt it, Google trichinosis and click images. And that will cure you of that. So you know me. I like meat. It's done as little as possible. But when it comes to wild pork, 160 degrees. All parts of it. Um, last question I got, because I kept mentioning this, this rifle on air, Savage Model 10 308 for 250 bucks. They're like, how do you do that? Um, the Savage Model 10 has been made for, I don't know, 50 years. And if you look for ones that are 20 years old, 15 years old, the old school just plain, which model? Just it was Back then there wasn't all this marketing hype around guns. It was the Savage Model 10. They all came with a wooden stock. They were on the short action frame of the Savage Model 10. There's a 308 barrel on them with an ugly looking barrel lug uh, nut that you can take off and actually swap barrels out on them. Now, you can't swap them out like a TC contender where you just swap, like you got to headspace them and all. It's pretty much a, like you, it's not permanent, but it's a significant operation each time you do it. It's not something you would do in the middle of a hunt. And it just made their manufacturing very easy for them uh, because it made it very easy to headspace. You just twisted the barrel to get your headspace right. You, you screw down the nut with a special tool. You, if you look at it, it uses a, so it's basically like a, a spanner wrench that you take this nut off with and, and it keeps their cost down. And, and that's, that's the gun I'm talking about. There's, there's not a bunch of different models of this gun. It's, it was a Savage Model 10. It came in short action and long action. And then eventually you could get it with a wooden stock or a synthetic stock. And that took an affordable gun and made it even more affordable. They made, you know, probably hundreds of thousands, if not a couple million of these things over 30 or 40 years before the new world and the Accu trigger and all the shit that Savage has now. And Savage rifles have always been very, very accurate, ridiculously accurate for the price. And I got this one in a gun show with a scope and rings on it. Oh, God, I guess about 2004 or five for 250 bucks. You can still get them for that. Now, the scope that was on it was crap, but the rings were good. So, 250 bucks for the rifle with the rings. I opened up the rings, took the old scope off it that I thought was a piece of junk. It, it worked. It just was not a scope I would put faith in, and I threw it away. I bought a new scope, and I dropped it on there. If you want a Savage Model 10 or any good quality rifle that's, you know, that, that, that's in a common caliber, 3006, 270, 308, 243, all that shit, gun shows have them in... By the buttload. I think the best deal with consistent accuracy that you'll find out in those guns that are, you know, 15 to 25 years old will tend to be your Savage Model 10s. Uh, the, a lot of the older, like Remington Model 700s and all, they hold their value more and they tend not to go down in price. Uh, and then, you know, because Remington's come out with like their budget bolt action and Winchester has their budget bolt action and Uh, Weatherby even has their budget bolt action in, in the Vanguard synthetic and what have you. A lot of these manufacturers back in, let's say, the 80s didn't have a budget gun. They were like, we don't do that. Remington, for God's sakes, you can buy the expensive one, the more expensive one, or the really expensive one, which would you like, right? They didn't have, you know, a $300 gun even in 1985. 
then a three hundred dollar gun out of ten eighty five was a shotgun, pump shotgun. Right. You couldn't buy a seven a brand new model seven hundred for three hundred bucks back then. You know, they were retailing for eight hundred dollars, like what they like what a lot of them are retailing still today for. Even with the budget models coming out. So that's just was but there's a lot of different stuff out there. And and if you want to get into a budget gun, the thing is, as we've seen on recent shows, you know, the Ruger Compact, the Weatherby Vanguard, you know, you can buy and that's why they're available, because you can buy new guns now uh for three, four hundred dollars. That are I mean The the Weatherby Vanguard you can get a, you know four four hundred bucks if you shop around. That's a rifle guaranteed to shoot minute of angle out of the box for four hundred dollars. You can get a six point five millimeter Creedmoor by the way. So that's that's even further driven down these old guns. There's a lot of value out there if you go look for it. Again, gun shows, pawn shops, stuff like that. You just have to not be in the I need to buy it mode. You have to be in the, I'm observing what's available, and when I see something that I know that I want, then I will buy mode. That's that's how you get deals like that. And a lot of times the pawn shops, you'll be like, well, how much is that? It's got to be like 500 bucks. And you're like, no, I've, I've seen those at gun shows for like $300, so I'll have to pass. You won't get out that door without them going, well, I'll do 315 I I totally saw a gun just like that. I was going to buy it. I was kind of kicking myself, but it was like, I think it was just under three hundred. I think two eighty five at the gun show. I'll just go to the next gun show and you you can get deal. You won't always get the deal, but it, you know. And if you don't get the deal, don't take the deal. You know, don't take the other deal. I'm not saying don't be willing to meet the guy somewhere, but uh, don't be willing. You know, don't be unwilling to ask for a better price, especially at pawn shop. Use you even big gun stores. Their used inventory. A lot of times, those guys will really make deals on that stuff. Once they get to a certain point, they need to start moving some of it out the door. Geez, that was all like a show in itself. Let's uh, shift into um, the kind of the, the phase two of today's show. So this question comes in uh, from Dan in Maryland, and Dan says, "Hey Jack, when do you know enough to start to participate in blockchain banking?" Details. You promote crypto often, but caution us not to jump in if we don't understand the basics. Would you put together a quiz about cryptocurrency? That's a few questions long. Don't give the answers. This could provide a litmus test to whether someone understands enough to get started. You could call it the crypto quiz or the starting block quiz, and there's so much to know. I would find it very helpful to have a starting benchmark. Thanks for all you do and the great people you bring in, Dan and Marilyn. Dan, no, hell no, I will not become the standard by which a person determines whether or not they are ready to invest in cryptocurrency. Um, <clears throat> I do want to give some context before I give some advice here, though. When I say don't jump in, I don't mean don't go put a few hundred bucks in Bitcoin and throw it over to an exchange and buy some altcoins and pay for some shit with it. That's not what I mean. What I mean is don't go spending money that you don't have the ability to lose without being really upset about, okay? That you only use, and I even, even once you know what you're doing, I still say you use risk capital. All the money that I have in Ethereum and Bitcoin and other uh, coins, all the money I've invested with, with Ben in, in my own mining gear, it's all risk capital. That means it's all money that I realize I could lose, and I actually don't think I will. Or I, Even with my risk capital, I try to hedge my bets, and I try to be smart about the choices that I make. But it's money that I accept is in a riskier position than I would put the majority of my wealth. Okay? That's, that's what I put in there. But I'm saying even before you do that kind of money, 
you need to do the kind of money that you might spend on a really nice meal at a really nice restaurant. And even before you do that, so now we got that in context, right? That's what I mean. So I'm not saying don't get started at all. I'm saying don't go putting $10,000 into Bitcoin tomorrow, especially if, let's say, it rallies again. It goes up over six grand. You put $10,000 in there, and it drops to five grand. And most of the world would still be very happy with $5,000 Bitcoin, but you just lost, uh, you know, what, 18% of your money, and you're mad at me now. And that's part of why I'm so strict about this. I do not want to get an email from somebody that says, Jack, you're such an asshole. I took all my children's money out of their college fund and invested in Bitcoin because you said it was a good investment, and now I lost half of its value. Or something blows up, and Bitcoin literally does blow up. And again, I don't think that's going to happen, but then like you know, you lost your life savings or some shit because you trusted me over yourself. That's I'm trying to really make sure... That doesn't happen. I don't want somebody to say, hey, Jack, I, I just spent $2,000 for a starter mining rig with Crypto Gulch, and you, the first day you turn it on, I only make $3, and I'm angry now. I don't want to hear that. I, I don't want to hear any of that because that all means you didn't understand what you were spending money on. You didn't have an ongoing plan for how you didn't get it. So as far as understanding it, what I mean is, under, and I'll give you some questions I think you should be able to answer for yourself. But I'm not going to give you a quiz and, the, and then like let you you know check the answers off something. Um, number one would be, how is a crypto coin created? What's the process? How does it work? What does mining mean? You know, how do we get a new Bitcoin or a new Dashcoin or a new Ethereum? How does that work? Okay. Um, how is it possible that it cannot be counterfeited? Now, it absolutely cannot be counterfeited, because if it could be, it already would have been done, it would have been found out, and it would all be worthless. Counterfeiting would destroy it, but it just means telling you that. I don't want you to just say, well, it can't be counterfeited, that's good. I want you to understand why. How is it that we're able to know that $50 worth of Bitcoin went from Jack to Dan, and that Bitcoin is only with Dan and no longer with Jack? What is the fee for that, and why does it exist? These basic questions, like, these are things I think a lot of people don't even understand about money, and they invest in money all the time. You put money in a bank account, you've invested in money, right? It could have been spent to buy something else. You chose to keep it in cash. Why? Buy stock all the time. Don't even know what the company does, you bought stock in. Buy mutual funds because it says that it has a historical rate of return of 9% over the last 10 years. So that's good, so I'll buy it. What companies do that, do that mutual fund hold the majority of its stock in? You know, are they in risk sectors? Not risk sectors that the government says are risk sectors, but risk to new technological disruption. No idea. So people do it all the time. But I don't want to be the reason you did it. The number one resource I will give you to learn about cryptocurrency is by a girl that was on this show. Her name is Amanda B. Johnson. She's the official spokesman for the Dash cryptocurrency. She's a six-part series called Dash School on YouTube. The first three videos in that series have absolutely nothing to do with Dash. They have to do with cryptocurrency in general. What is mining? How does it work? How do we send one unit of cryptocurrency to another party? What do miners do? How does mining work? All of that stuff, because... What Dash wanted to do was create informed users 
and they wanted users to know, well, here's all the great things about Dash that other cryptocurrencies don't do. Well, how can you educate your customers, your users to that, if they don't know the baseline knowledge of cryptocurrency? And to me, she broke it down in the most easy-to-understand way I've ever seen. I'd say if you go, go through those three videos and you're confident you understand the material, maybe you go through them a second time, then it's reasonable to go buy $500 worth of Bitcoin and start figuring things out. You know, you buy it through Coinbase. Go to Coinbase, use my link, you'll get $10 in free Bitcoin, I'll get $10 in free Bitcoin when you fund your account with $100. Bucks. Go to my site, click on the Coinbase banner. Get your account set up in Coinbase. Yes, there's ways that we can make things more anonymous than using a service like Coinbase. It doesn't matter. You're getting started. It's $500 or it's $200 or it's $150. It's whatever you're going to do. Set up a Jack's wallet and send, you know, if you buy $500 worth of Bitcoin, have $100 that you can spend easily from your mobile device. So install the Jack's wallet. You can get it at jacks.io or just go to the App Store and look up Jack's, J-A-X-X. Send yourself some Bitcoin. See what it costs you to do it. There'll be a fee to do this. You'll have less when you get it. You've played with it and you, you paid a little bit to play with it. Get it over there. If you want to hold a little bit of Dash, right? You maybe you want to hold $100 worth of Dash. Send yourself about $215 worth of Bitcoin. And when it gets to your Jack's wallet, convert it into $100 worth of Dash and leave the rest in Bitcoin. And just relax. Hold on to it. Watch the balances. Feel good about it. If you if you figure out, hey, I'd like to buy, I don't know, 50 of this new altcoin that sells for 50 cents a coin. Fine. It, you know, it's, it's, it's 50 bucks. Figure out how much Bitcoin you need. Set up a Bittrex account at the exchange. And send yourself some Bitcoin from your Coinbase account or from your Jack's wallet to your, your Bittrex account. And buy that altcoin. And then figure out, do I want to just, since it's not that much money and I'm not that worried about it, leave it on the Bittrex exchange? Or is there another wallet that it could go to and move it to that other wallet? Find a place that takes Bitcoin, buy something with Bitcoin. This is when I say, don't jump until you understand it. I'm not saying don't use it at all. I'm saying use small amounts of it. Here's the thing. Let's say that you want to buy something and that company takes Bitcoin. All right? A lot of times they'll take Bitcoin at a discount. So even though you'll pay some fees to do this, you'll still pay less. Find things you want to buy. Find people selling it for Bitcoin at a discount. Go buy Bitcoin at Coinbase for cash and then send it to them and buy it from them. Or send it to your wallet and buy it from them. Use the old, like, remember the old days when people want to save extra money and what they would do with their checking accounts is they'd round up their purchases? So you buy something for $133.50, you write a $133.50 check, right? And then you, 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 you wrote down that you spent $135, you rounded up to the nearest five, and then at the end of the year you figured out how much money was left in your checking account from all of those roundups, <clears throat> and you move it to a savings account. Well, start doing that with Bitcoin. When you need to buy $40 worth of Bitcoin to make a, 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 a transaction, buy $45 worth, throw it to Jack's, wallet, and pay the 40 bucks. Just start learning how it works by using it. And let's say, well, uh, I bought Bitcoin at $6,200, and it's at $5,700 today. If you spent it when you bought it, it doesn't matter. You were going to spend the money anyway. But it went up, and I could have more money if I didn't spend it. 
but you were going to buy the thing anyway you chose. You See what I'm saying? Like, if you get upset over these little amounts of money, you're not ready yet. So when you can, you know, throw 500 bucks, 1,000 bucks at it, play with it, learn from it, get a little bit of Ethereum, you know, maybe get a Nano Ledger wallet and move. If you start buying, you know, a few hundred dollars a month or something, you start to build up some serious reserves, move that onto a hardware wallet, and just get to where you're comfortable. But start with Dash School. Okay, next question falls right in with this one. Uh, this is from Jeff. Jeff says, hey, Jack, where do you recommend I go purchase some cryptocurrencies? My Avast alerted to a wall of coins when I attempted a transaction. Thanks for any help. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Jeff, well, first of all, I don't know anything about Avast. But I, I, I don't really rely on it as my um, antivirus of choice. And I don't think wallofcoins.com is going to put a virus on your computer or malware in your computer Because if they did, this is the cryptocurrency space, and there'd be a billion people screaming from the high heavens that not to trust wallofcoins.com. You got to realize, cryptocurrency users in general. Now, this doesn't mean any site that's this is a cryptocurrency site, but a well-known site among cryptocurrency enthusiasts that's doing anything shifty is going to get slaughtered in the court of public opinion. The think about what I just explained, right? So the average person that uses cryptocurrency that wants to buy some Bitcoin from somebody privately that goes to wallofcoins.com to do that, which is basically a place where you can find somebody local that will sell you Bitcoin. So it's private. Got it? Anonymous. Sounds much dirtier when you say anonymous. I think it's pri privacy is valuable, right? So there's a private exchange of Bitcoin for, for hard cash, let's say. Um, but I don't think we, you need to, again, if you're buying small amounts, I don't think you really even need to start to worry about that. You know, cryptocurrency isn't just so you can avoid taxes, right? There's ways to use cryptocurrency where you can avoid taxes. But that's not the, I mean, if, if, if I told you, hey, you know what? If you take this investment strategy, you can turn $10,000 into $100,000 this year. You'd be like, oh, that's great. But you're going to have to pay taxes on it. Well, I'm not doing it then. Well, then you give me the $90,000, I'll pay tax on it. I mean, so it's not... And as people get caught up with wanting to be anonymous with everything and all, I mean, you, again, learn it with the tools so that if you do decide to be anonymous, you actually are. You don't just think you are. So the best place to purchase some cryptocurrency is Coinbase. Because they're going to make me give them identity and my driver's license. And they're going to make you give them the same information that a bank will require of you to open up a bank account. Because essentially that's what you're doing. Since they take money, and since they exchange cryptocurrency for U.S. currency, they are a money handler, they are treated like a bank by the government, and these are the things they have to do at different levels of your account privileges to be able to give you an account. But you can go set up an account in 15 minutes, unless you live in like two stupid states, and I don't know where they are, Canada, and once you do, you can, you can buy cryptocurrency with a credit card by wiring some money from your bank account into it And then buying it with that. But I'll have to wait 48 hours. So what? If you're panicked buying, you're not in the right state of mind. So I think the best place is, is, is Coinbase. I would also tell you, though, there are probably a lot of like <clears throat> cryptocurrency groups on Facebook and stuff like that where people will be like, yeah, PayPal me 200 bucks and I'll send you 200 bucks worth of Bitcoin. I've sold and bought Bitcoin that way with people in this audience. The so guy's like, I, I want to sell like... $300 worth of Bitcoin, are you buying right now? Yeah, sure. Sure. Here's my PayPal address. 
Send me 300 bucks. Tell me where you want the Bitcoin to go. Now, you have to have a trusted party when you do that. But that private transaction can happen, and it's pretty damn private. Um, <clears throat> but I, I don't want Bitcoin. I want Dash. So buy Bitcoin and put it in Shapeshift or, you know, what have you, Changely, and make it into, you know, whatever the hell it is that you want. But don't... See, I think the problem is people get so hung up with one, well, I don't want to give any of my personal information away, but yet you have a bank account where they have all your personal information. You have a retirement account where they have all your personal information. And I think that's your easiest, and here's the thing about Coinbase. It's safe. It works and it's safe. And you can get started. And, and, and the whole deal is get started and start spending and receiving cryptocurrency. And the more you work in the cryptocurrency world and away from the dollar world, the more anonymous things become. And I'll leave it at that for you to figure the rest of the way out. But the easiest place to buy coins is on Coinbase. And because you can buy Bitcoin, you can also buy Ethereum and Litecoin. But if you have Bitcoin, you can, any exchange that you could open an account with, you can send Bitcoin to your wallet there and you can buy anything else you want. Most of the exchanges do not take dollars. Some of them do. And the ones that do, they want all the personal information because they're treated as money handlers because they, Dun, 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 dun. Handle money. If you are handling money, government money, you're in the government's world, they tell you what to do. Do you know what you set up a Bittrex account with? An email address. An email address. All right? So there you go. That's the best I can do on that one, and I'm going to stop on crypto and go to other things today. But I want to say one more thing on the whole cryptocurrency thing with like knowing what you're doing. I think it's important to understand money if you want to understand cryptocurrency. So what is deflation and inflation? And what does it mean that Bitcoin's a deflationary currency and why is it a deflationary currency? It would be good things to know. Just things like that. How is, how is the dollar created? How do we create dollars? Well, let me just print them. No, they don't. It's not that simple. It's actually far more insidious than that. So learn about the U.S. monetary system and then when you learn about cryptocurrency, it will make a lot more sense Because I've said this about Satoshi, who is the mythical guy that made Bitcoin that nobody's quite sure who he is. Um, one thing I know about the, the guy that coded the original code behind Bitcoin, he understood perfectly the modern monetary policy of developed nations like the United States, Canada, the Central Bank of Europe, etc. Understood that perfectly and did things in a way that were counter to it for very specific reasons, all right? As we move on, <clears throat> we have a money question, in a way, from Daniel. Daniel says, my question is, when is it time to spend money on consulting for a property versus just getting the principles I know and utilizing that money to plant stuff? We have five acres that we just moved to North Houston about a year and a half ago. We put in gardens some fencing for horses to start a food forest. We have potentially talked about putting in a pond or some other earthworks, but don't have the budget yet, and we don't want to make a major mistake in how we implement it either. I heard you mention Nick's phone consulting and looked into that. It's very reasonably priced as opposed to 30 k elsewhere. But my wife said we could also take that $250 and plant tons of trees. We have read through a decent amount of permaculture resources and understand the concepts. At what point do you think the cost of consulting, either minor or major, is worth it uh, versus just going for it? Thanks, Daniel. Okay, so I think it works out this way. The minute the consulting saves you $1 above what it costs, you are a fool not to do it. 
Okay? Let me say it one more time. As soon as the consulting saves you $1 over what you would have lost by not doing it, you are a fool not to do it. So if an hour of Nick on the phone looking at your video, etc., for $250 would prevent you from making a single $251 mistake, at that point, everything else that you get out of it is gravy, and you would be a fool not to do it. It would literally be saying, Dan, you, Daniel, if you call me up, and speak to me, and pay me $250, the next day I will mail you a check for $251. You'll get to speak for me an hour and learn everything I know that applies to you about this issue, and I will give you a dollar more than you gave me back the next day. It's the same exchange. So the question you have to ask is, will this save me $250 or more? And if it will, then you do it. Now, should you? I don't know, but I know this. When you're saying, we're thinking about earthworks, should you be? That's an important question. Because it might be with five acres north of Houston, with your sandy soil and lots of rainfall, that the last thing you want to do is go in there with earthworks and put swales in on your property and interfere with your access and pathways for no real gain. I'm not saying that would be the case. But it might be, and I'm telling you, you don't want to do that. So the fact that you could, at some point in the future, you know, get a hold of a piece of equipment and put swells in that you shouldn't, just so you have swells because they're cool, could screw your property up. Well, knowing that you shouldn't do that is worth $250. Knowing that you should do that is worth $250 as well, and let me tell you why. Say you just start planting shit. You buy $500 worth of trees. They start to grow. They're three or four times their size. Now you're going to put earthworks in. You have to disrupt or destroy some of them. Well, they have years of growth on them. If you know that you're eventually going to do something or want to preserve the ability or want to take account of that feature eventually being in your landscape, you preserve the value of the trees you plant. You never plant them where they don't belong. You want to put a pond in. What if you think this is like this great place for your food forest and you go buy a couple hundred dollars worth or more of trees and it turns out that was the ideal dam site? So am I telling you spend $250 with Nick Ferguson? No. I'm telling you how I would look at it if I didn't have the knowledge that it doesn't sound like you have, but I'm not sure. Maybe you do. Maybe you can look at your property and go, Nah, I, I can't ever really see swales being necessary here. Except for one. I could see that one area there because the catchment's so large. Because that's the ideal dam site. So I'd want to put one. If I ever do this, the dam site's going to be there. And I'm going to have a single catchment swale. And it's going to serve more as a catchment swale for the dam than it is going to serve as a swale for the foundations of a food forest. If you can make that kind of a determination... You probably don't need the $250 worth of consulting, but then I'm going to tell you how the other side of that works. It will probably be worth more to you than if you did need it. Because what you then could do with the knowledge exceeds what the person who just needed to know what not to screw up would be able to do with the knowledge. Good consultants pay for themselves. Now, here's the other side of it. It makes no sense to go spend... $5,000 in consulting fees with somebody 
on anything. It doesn't matter what permaculture, homesteading, your business, whatever. If you're in a position where whatever you spend in consulting is going to exceed the money you have for a budget on the project. It, it just makes no sense. But with something like what Nick's doing with 250 bucks, I'd say for a guy with his intuition, his knowledge, and his experience, 250 bucks for him to watch a video that you take of your property and talk to you about it for an hour is some of the best money you could spend. Because whether you're a newbie that needs to be told, don't do these things because it will screw shit up really bad, or you've got quite a bit of experience and knowledge It's going to it's going to be of it's going to exceed the value. I think it's the, one of the best deals I've I've heard of in in the whole permaculture industry and I I think it's a good way for people to sanity check what they want to do. To say, you know, I I want to do this and Nick's a guy that'll tell you flat out no, no you don't. No you don't. Don't spend that money there. So, I if it was me, I would you know why I haven't done it Because Nick's my friend and we work together all the time and he's been here. And he's like, yeah, you know, what about this? Or what about that? Or I don't know about that. Or yeah, and we'll combine our ideas or whatever and come up with really cool stuff. That's been worth way more than 250 bucks to me. And, and I know what I'm doing. So that, that's how I look at that. But again, you, you can't spend money on consulting and get any value out of it if you don't have the capital to do the work that the consulting is for. So And, and again, that has nothing to do with permaculture or homesteading. That has to do with, with just money. But I'm, I'm back to if you're going to do things and you're going to spend money and consulting saves you $1 above the cost of the consulting, then you're a fool not to do it because if it does that, it will eventually do more. And then it's all gravy and it's literally, it's, it's a way of looking at it as like free money. Because money you don't lose is money you didn't spend that you still have that you otherwise wouldn't and therefore it's free money or you've spent it more effectively, etc. Uh, let's take another one. This next one's just a kind of a cool, quick little tip. It comes up from John. He says, Jack, I found mint oil used in a wax warmer will purge ladybugs and stink bugs from the house. I used the mint oil uh, candy flavoring from the decorating aisle at Walmart in a wax warmer when my sinuses are plugged. And my wife noticed that last year when we did it, we did not suffer the stink bugs and the ladybugs. This past week, we started getting hunt inundated with them again. So we used the mint oil specifically to see if it works. In one night, they disappeared from the wall and ceilings. We found a few dead ones on the floor, but the invasion seemed to be curtailed. Without more evidence, I can't say for sure of its effectiveness, but if others try it and it works, we can figure that out easy enough. John from West Virginia. John, awesome. So, again... Um, And for those that are long-term listeners, this would be the other John from West Virginia. This wouldn't be John from West Virginia. It's not that guy. Anyway, um, I think it's great. And it makes perfect sense to me. And, you know, I think in the world of essential oils and all, but if stuff from Walmart for flavoring for a cake works, it's, it, it is the mint in there. It's the mint essential oils that work. And it makes me wonder about using mint um, uh, creatively. Maybe the best way to... Uh, To grow that squash that you're so worried about the squash stink bugs is to grow your squash in a mint patch. Uh, or I just say squash bugs. Why? Because the squash bug and a stink bug are very, very similar critters. And they have the exact same problem. Nothing eats them. And I think it's because they both taste like shit and burn. 
Because I've seen chickens eat them once. And every time I've seen a chicken eat either one, it's always a young, dumb bird. And when she eats it, she makes a horrible sound and runs away. So they may be... And, and if it works on stink bugs... And ladybugs, it may just be that mint in of itself, the essential oil and aroma of mint, is displeasing to many pest insects. Well, ladybugs, however, not being a pest, but still, I mean, it's worth giving a shot. So maybe I'll take some squash next year and grow them. The mint will overtake. No, it won't. No, it won't. Squash have great big leaves. Mint has little bitty leaves. Maybe we'll give that a try and see how it works. I have been told by an old-timer one time, <clears throat> a cat mint, uh, catnip, Uh, could be grown around squash or even large amounts of it harvested and put around squash and it would keep down squash bugs. So now my permaculture pattern recognition senses are going tingly like spider sense because catnip is a mint. It doesn't have the same smell as mint, but it's a mint and is a menthol, a menthus species. So anyway, I uh, just thought I'd put that out there. If you've tried this or anything else like it and it works for you, let us know. So this next one comes from Pat, and Pat says, Thought you might be interested in this thoughtful article on UBI, which of course is Universal Basic Income, something being thrown a lot a lot lately. It's a very long article. It's very well written. It brings up some very important points. I'm not going to read it all to you because it's too long. I am going to read one paragraph to you, though, to give you the overall point of the article. He's talking about how governments that tend to have a large natural resource of some sort, uh, that are able to pay their people a welfare of some kind. In you know, ancient Rome, for instance, it was a ration of grain to every citizen of the city. Okay, Tend to have far more um, autocratic and oligarchical societies and those where every man has to work for his daily bread and there's larger scale participation and there's never a lot of people living off of a few people are more democratic. All right. So he says, we don't have to go back in ancient history to see this trend. These days, we have many countries in the world whose incomes are based on extracting resources from the ground, requiring little to no participation from the common people. Which countries are functioning democracies and which are autocracies? Uh, the World Bank gives us a list of countries ordered by what percentage of their merchant, uh, merchandise exports comes from fuels, which would be oil mostly, and gas. At 50% or more, we find in this order Iraq, Angola, Algeria, Brunei, Kuwait, Azerbaijan, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Kazakhstan, Russia, Oman, Norway, Colombia, Bolivia, and Bahrain. Okay, can we notice a trend? How many of these countries provide a good set of political rights for their citizens? Well, let me, let's think about the ones that we could throw out. Did the problems have nothing to do, probably, with oil? as far as the political climate. Um, because they're, they're largely Islamic states dominated as theocracies or pseudo-democracies run by Islamic states. Iraq would now go into that category since we screwed it up. It was pretty much a secular nightmare. Now it's pretty much a, a religious nightmare. Angola, <laughs> Algeria, <laughs> Brunei, <laughs> Kuwait, <laughs> Azerbaijan, <laughs> Qatar, <laughs> Saudi Arabia, Kazakhstan, not, not as much, but kind of. Russia, it's kind of its own thing. Communism, right? I mean, it predated you know the oil boom in Russia. Uh, Oman, <laughs> Norway, I, I think Norway is as much a democracy as any other European country. 
They have a lot of socialism, but they have lower business taxes than the United States, and they're kind of devoid of the whole, you know, Islamic State, for now anyway. Colombia, hmm, I'm going to admit that I don't know a ton about Colombia, but I think drugs might be part of the problem there. Bolivia, uh, yeah, I'm going to say kind of the same thing. And Bahrain, and Bahrain, we're back to uh, Islamic uh, <clears throat> theocracy. So, I, I don't know that his, that's kind of his silver bullet in the whole article, and that's why I pulled it out. That in of itself doesn't necessarily make an argument against UBI. It doesn't necessarily make an argument in of itself against the, the concept that individuals as part of the society. Because this is what, I, again, I want to be clear. Some people, like, I, can say, I can't believe you're, uh, you're, you're, you're advocating UBI and, and check. You're, you're supposed to be a libertarian and an anarchist and you're, you're advocating for this. And, and, and I, don't, I just don't understand why. And because this is socialism and communism and I can't believe you don't see it. You're a big doo-doo head. I mean, I get emails that are pretty much like that um, and worse. And I'm not advocating anything. I'm telling you what I see coming, why I see it coming, and different ways that it could play out. That's not an advocation of anything. When the weatherman says there's a 100% chance that tomorrow you're going to get severe thunderstorms where you live, he's not advocating for severe thunderstorms. It'd be like email him and saying, you're a big doo-doo head because you're sending thunderstorms to my house, and you're going to hurt people because you're a big doo-doo head. Right? The weatherman is simply looking at the radar, looking at the setup of the systems in the fronts, and saying, shit's going to collide here, and this is what's going to happen. And here's the things you can do to actually make an advantage out of this, or to mitigate the danger. That's, and that's what I'm doing. So UBI is, is being pushed mostly by socialists. There's no doubt about that. But the under, see, just because they're, see, if you just say, well, they're socialists, so it's wrong. Okay, that's ad hominem. You're attacking the source rather than the central idea. And the central idea, and this is the problem with a lot of times with socialism, the central idea is great, but the execution always results in, ah, and death. Okay? That's, that, and, and scarcity of resources and everything else. All right, that goes with it. And, you know, You, you, you see what I'm saying? I, again, not advocating. But a lot of the central ideas are the truth used to sell a lie. And the concept is, if we go back to tribalistic days, if you had somebody that was really a sponge, they might be mocked or whatever, or kind of kicked to the curb. But in the end, in a tribe, if you were part of the tribe and not thrown out, well, everybody at least got a tent or a hut, Right? They had a dirt floor or whatever, and some people had nicer ones, and they worked harder for it or whatever, or did more, were more talented. But you kind of at least got a hut. You got to, you, you, you shared in the tribe's resources. You got some food. You got some water. And if somebody came after you, they would protect you, right? Because you were one of them. The, the, the weakest guy that barely made the last level guy that made the football team might be picked on by the football team all the time, but don't you do it if you're not part of the team. Kind of that mentality. And that a basic human tenet that, that formed that is that as, as we are all human beings, we are all on some level, wor I don't use the word entitled because I hate the word, worthy of a share sufficient by what's available to at least feed and clothe and house ourselves and provide ourselves with water. 
Just being here. That we were worthy of that. And, and, and the way we explain that, even when you think it, it counters with what you believe, if you see somebody that's truly downtrodden, that's truly tried, and they're going to starve to death, you don't leave them there to starve. Which is what the advocates of government always say. You don't want to leave them there, you starve. Nobody does that. If you do, you're a psychopath or a sociopath, and you need a bullet in your head. No one leaves a person laying on the street who's really going to starve to death if there's anything they can do to help. Sometimes there's nothing you can do. But if you can help, generally people do help each other. So the concept of UBI would be, <clears throat> no, not everybody should have a McMansion and, and a, you know, a self-driving car and everything else, but everybody at least should have the very basics of what they need, or at least the means to acquire them. So <clears throat> then if you, if you didn't do anything else, you would literally live at the bottom edge of society, but at least you wouldn't fall off. And we do that now with social welfare programs and all kinds of other things that most of us hate. So the concept is you figure out what that base level is, as low as it could possibly be, and you give that to everyone. And it, and then you let people do more if they want and get out of their way. And you eliminate all welfare programs. There is no more welfare mamas. Squirting out more babies does not get you more money anymore. Nobody pays for your birth control or whatever else you're demanding. This is it. Everybody gets this. You start getting this when you become an adult, and it's up to you to do with your life what you want. If you squander it, you squander it. If you do something good with it, you do something good with it. <clears throat> can that work? <clears throat> it can work. It can also fail miserably. I think what he misses in this article, that the real tyranny is, that if you can give something, you can take it. And the government can use this like a switch. If you don't, we'll just flip the switch off and you don't get it anymore. I, I think that's one of the greatest threats to UBI. You can make economic arguments that it won't work. <clears throat> In our current economy, the way things are currently run, using a current debt-backed money system, you would be correct. But we didn't always have the current monetary system. It's changed. Everybody, 1913! I'm glad you know that date. But I hope you know that since 1913... Our monetary system, including the 1913 change, has changed five times. Significantly. Now, it still sort of looks the same, but if it can change five times in a hundred and, what, 104 years, well, it can change one more, can it? And there are ways, especially using blockchain-like technologies, cryptocurrency-like monetary systems done by the state where one could simply create the money necessary and the government would spend it in a circulation. And it could actually be better than what we have now. I didn't say good. I didn't say we should do it. It could be better than what we have now. If they did it right, you could go to a 100% consumption tax model and pay no tax on property or income. And you would only pay money when you spent taxes when you spent money. So it could work. But the threat of tyranny? Oh, my God. The only way we're going to get away from that is to start dismantling the state itself. See, <clears throat> what I think we don't understand is, look, UBI is going to, you don't understand you already live in tyranny. You don't understand they already control you. You understand they already take half of everything you work for. What do you think you have to lose? And the reason people think this way is because of what I call dystopian delusion. 
Dystopian delusion. Dystopian delusion is perfectly understood if you watch, not, don't read the book, watch the movie that went with 1984. It looks like it's, it's constantly in a state of fog. The movie's really in color, but it looks black and white. Everything is dank and damp and horrible. And everybody knows they're oppressed, and everybody knows they're miserable. And everybody knows they live in a tyranny. And everybody knows they have to wait for the little bit of chocolate to come. And everybody knows they'll kill you. Everybody knows they'll put you in, in, in prison. Everybody knows. That's not real dystopia. Real dystopia is shiny. It's in technicolor. It's bright. Mary Poppins sings in the freaking background. For none are more enslaved than those who falsely believe themselves to be free. You live in a place where you need a piece of paper in some towns in the freest nation in the world to dig an effing hole to plant an effing tree, and you want to tell me that you're worried about tyranny in the future. It's time to start building freedom in the present for yourself. And things like UBI, worrying about it, you can clamor all you want. If you haven't paid attention, those of us who truly advocate for liberty, nobody in charge listens to us. The way we make advances is we take away from them. We create proactive apathy. And if they want to give us a UBI, go ahead. Give me a UBI. I'm not worried about the person, if you give them UBI, is going to sit around on their ass. Because guess what they're doing right now? They're already sitting around on their ass. They're already sponging the fact that they're not dead, okay? They're already sponging wealth from someone. I don't care. You give me $1,000 or $800 or $2,000 a month right now, for the rest of my life, I will not slow down one bit in accomplishing the things that I intend to accomplish. I will speed up. I'll speed up. I'll guarantee myself a few more million dollars in retirement. You give me that, that's all I'm going to do. I don't need that shit. Let's just, here's, just into the savings, into the savings, a little bit into cryptocurrency, a little bit of silver and gold, invest in that business over here, build that shit up. I don't even want to look at it. Thank you. Thank you for helping me become more wealthy. Fine. I'm still going to keep tearing down your walls and kicking your ass. And that way when they say, well, Mr. Spirico, we don't like the way you're behaving, so maybe you don't need your UBI. F off. I don't give a shit. I never needed it in the first place. But not everybody will be that way. Most people are freaking drones anyway. Most people are happy happy slaves shining away their chains anyway. Don't be afraid you're going to become one of them. And for God's sakes, admit that you are if you are, so that you can cast off your chains, stop polishing them, and start building your own shit. When I hear people freaking out in the libertarian communities about UBI, I'm like, why are you wasting your freaking time? But it's socialism. You live in a socialist. This is a socialist country. This is a fascist. This is a neo-fascist socialist state you live in in America right now. Go build something. Go do something. And if they ever do this, if they ever figure out how, take it and do more. Because you ain't going to stop it. It's going to or it's not going to happen. Nothing we do is, it is in your circle of concern. That's a big-ass circle. That's a big-ass sphere. Focus on your sphere of influence. Because as we're about to see, as we finish up today's show, some shit's going to come down and change the world in a way you can't even imagine yet. UBI, 
it'd be a small piece of what we're going to be talking about here in a second. Before we finish up on that very deep-ass subject, let's take a, one that's a, a, a little bit <clears throat> easier uh, to, to answer and uh, maybe a little bit more lighthearted uh, and maybe will help people because a lot of us out there have you know, critters in our lives that uh, are pets. They're not really there as uh, doing a job or being livestock. And some of us happen to have cats. And I think what I'm going to say today applies equally to cats as it does to dogs. It says, hi, Jack. <clears throat> My question is, how good or bad are milk and eggs for cats? I can buy unprocessed milk and free-range eggs from local farmers cooperative much cheaper than I can buy tinned cat food of unknown source from supermarkets. Also, the cows and hens are local to me, and I can see their living conditions, welfare, and feeding, which is outdoors, free-range, and good. However, I have read on the Internet that cats should not be fed milk. It is bad for them. But that could be marketing uh, scaring by the processed tin cat food companies. Uh, I have saw a few that milk can give some of my cats the runs, but they're outdoor working cats, therefore it's not a problem to me. I want you to think about that, uh, Matt. Um, I'm sorry, uh, Kiernan. Sorry, guys, I've got annual throat problems. Uh, it seems to happen every time this year. Uh, it says, I have seen that milk can give some of my cats the runs, but they are outdoor working cats, therefore it's not a problem to me. How do you like having the runs, dude? I'm uh, just saying. Uh, and they seem to love drinking milk. Some of my cats love eating raw eggs. Others not so much. I think eggs are an acquired taste with some of my cats. Just curious on what your thoughts are on the above. Thanks, Kiernan. Okay, Kiernan, here's the thing. Um, I don't think you should regularly feed anyone that's an adult, whether it's a cat, a dog, or a human, milk. And we just talked about with that with Dr. Ken Berry. Um, yes, they like milk because it's sweet. And it probably tastes more sweet to them than it even does to you and I. Uh, because cow's milk is highly sweet compared to something like cat's milk. I don't know that for first-hand information, but based on goat's milk and things like that, I'm going to assume that it is. But it's sweet, and it's something they don't get often. So, of course, they're going to... And I have never met a cat that will walk away from a, a, a bowl of milk. But it's not designed for the maintenance of an adult animal, nutritionally. That's not the nutritional profile of milk. Milk is designed to grow an organism quickly. And hence, I don't think it's a good cornerstone food product for a cat or a dog or an adult human. Okay? I don't think it's anything to do with a conspiracy by the 10 cat food companies. That's just It's just not. It's just not a good food source for adults because it's designed to grow babies into adults quickly. And once you're an adult, that results in getting overweight. And yes, it probably results in things like having um, improper bathroom functioning, right? Because you're designed to eat, get your calories from solid food, and now you're eating a liquid food substitute that's balanced in a way that's designed to make you grow fast when you don't need to grow fast anymore. I'll leave it at that. Eggs, different animal. An egg is basically a proto-chicken. Uh, cats eat birds. And in nature, cats would eat birds. I don't think there's any harm in cooking eggs for your animals. Every once in a while, we get into like, we'll have like a drop-off in buying and a glut in production with our eggs at the same time. And if we get to a certain point, we'll even fry up a couple dozen eggs and we'll put it in a bowl. And then the dogs get a little bit of that every day. And they seem to like that better than raw eggs. They did like raw eggs a lot, but with as many that get lost and cracked and damaged, they're kind of like, yeah, we're over that now. You know, they'll eat one, and then they're like, I don't really want another one today, man. I'm, I'm good. But I do think that the reason, like, all three of my dogs have gorgeous, shiny coats, uh, and my cats eat eggs too. 
my house cat won't eat eggs. My two outside cats love eggs, and they get eggs often. And so I'm all about feeding them eggs. I think it's very reasonable that a predator like a cat, um, you know, we see all these these like documentaries, and you see the cat leap up in the air and grab the bird out of the air and bring it to the and it's so amazing the the athletes that cats are and what they can do. And they do that. They absolutely do. Uh, but what we don't think about is the fact that they climb trees, they find nests, they certainly eat baby birds. I do not think it's out of the realm of reality that the average cat that was living feral, when it got up there and found a nest and the nest was full of eggs, instead of baby birds, would eat the eggs. I think a cat will eat the eggs, uh, whether they were laid yesterday or whether they're a day from hatching. It doesn't matter. I think it's kind of like the cat is a predator slash scavenger, and it fits in with it. However, do I think you should feed your cats eggs as their primary meal source all day, every day? Probably not, because I believe in varied food sources for any animal to be healthy, because they all need varied foods in their diets, because that's how they naturally live. So if you think about a cow that was like a cattle analog, like a bison, living out in the plains before we came here and screwed everything up, Yeah, they eat grass every day, but the, the mixtures and ratios change constantly. Um, dogs are going to be a, a, a mix, like cats, they're going to be a mixture of predator and scavenger. So if you wanted to, to, to put things into their diet that would vary it beyond the eggs, I think little bits of meat. Uh, if you live where you have people doing farming activities around you, find if you have anybody doing poultry. And a lot of the pasture poultry guys I'm talking to now, what they're doing, they're selling parts. You know, they're selling breast cutlets and leg quarters and what have you. And a lot of times they're selling the cores dirt cheap. And you can take a core, chicken core, and put it through a really big industrial grade grinder and grind the bones, the marrow, everything. That'd make great cat food. Make great dog food, by the way, too. Uh, a little bit of heart, a little bit of kidney, a little bit of liver, little bits of that mixed in with your eggs. Um, I think it could be a good base, but I wouldn't rely on it as a sole source. I wouldn't rely on anything as a sole source. Because we all have needs in vitamins and minerals and micro and macronutrients. And almost everything's deficient in something. So if we rely on one thing, we're going to be deficient in whatever that one thing is deficient in. If that makes sense. So those are my thoughts on that. And uh, guys, due to my throat and uh, the depth of the next story that I wanted to cover, I've made a decision. I am going to punt it till tomorrow where it will be the entire topic of the day's show. Uh, it is, uh, was brought to me by a guy named uh, Dylan, who is on the, the forums or the blog known as Angus Bangus. And he works in the power generation industry. And I'll just give you a preview of what we're going to cover tomorrow. And I'll, I'll tell you what, what set this off, and then we'll, we'll close the show for today. But he said... Uh, Well, I said in a recent episode that within 10 years, the majority of the cars being sold would be electric. Now, keep in mind, that would be 51%. Now, I actually meant more than that, but that would be, I could technically be right if 51% of the cars sold by 2017 were electric. And in 20, the majority of the cars on the road would be electric. And uh, Dylan made a response on the blog and basically said, That ain't going to happen, and it ain't going to happen because I work in power generation, and we can't make enough electricity for that to happen. We can't replace gasoline with electrical power because we can't make enough of it. We can't put in enough power plants. We can't get there. 
you don't understand the total BTUs. And that's what I was saying. Well, first of all, you need to understand what I was saying was 10 years, the majority sold, and in 20 years, the majority driving. Well, he sent me an email recently, and here's what he said. Jack, video link below discusses disruption in both transportation and the utilities, unsubsidized cost of photovoltaic and battery storage dropping to disruptive levels. I was thinking of all the limitations he is missing in his pitch. Then I realized I was thinking like Ma Bell instead of Google. Heard you reference my comments on Friday's show. I just might be wrong. Y'all may not need us for too long. We're trying to make sure we stay relevant in executing our vision of We Power Life, and that may look very different in 10 to 20 years. Use as you see fit on the show, Dylan. Um, and this is a presentation by a guy named Tony Seba. And if you think my predictions are radical, his are more radical. The thing is, he has very clear data points to back it up. And the cost of solar approaching what he calls the, the God point. So I'll give you a little bit of this. The concept is that what they're playing around with in CERN with the super collider, collider is what they call the God particle, which would be the zero point particle, where you could literally generate energy from what would seem to appear to be nothing. Free energy, zero point energy. Now, whether they're going to get there or not, we don't know. But his point was, if they could, if you had a magic box that lived in a, you know, in a, a giant centralized power station that could make unlimited power for no money, it still costs money to deliver it. And if you could start producing solar on-site with storage, so batteries and panels at $0.07 cents a kilowatt, You can't deliver free energy. The transmission costs will prevent you from competing with locally. And when you start talking, getting down to like four cents, it's over. And you literally see a complete implosion in the entire concept of energy. I know this sounds heretical. I know this sounds like Stephen Harris right now somewhere, his ears are turning red and he's burning and he's turning into a Frankenstein monster. Photovoltaic bad! And he's going to have a Harris conniption, right? Well, I hope that teases you. Tomorrow I'm going to lay out this gentleman's case. I'll give you a link to his video. And uh, I'm going to talk about what it means if he's right. Because there's a lot not being said. He's, he's speaking to a group of people that want to save the planet from the evil automobiles, so they're very happy about this. I don't know that many of them understand the long-term implications of this level of disruption, but we'll talk about that tomorrow. Uh, with that, I want to uh, slide right into our music segment since today went so long. Uh, I just really quick will remind you, if you want to help support the Survival Podcast, do your online shopping through TSPAS, and I have a cool item of the day for review today you can take a look at if you want to. I'll tell you what it is tomorrow because the other product tomorrow kind of goes along with it, and we'll leave it at that. So, because I'm really excited about this, what we're going to be doing for the next seven days. F Saturday was a birthday, but not of a person. Saturday was the birthday of an album that, in my opinion, is one of the most successful albums, 
And in sales, it's pretty successful. But I think there's another way to gauge that I'll talk about in a second of all time. Bad Out of Hell by Meatloaf. And we're going to play all the songs off Bad Out of Hell each day in a row until we wear it out in celebration of the 40th anniversary of Bad Out of Hell. And some of you now feel old, right? And you should. Um, <clears throat> this, this song is the lead song off, and of course it is called Bad Out of Hell. And I think a lot of people don't even realize what it's about or where it's from or how it became what it is. Let me read you some, uh, little bit of stuff off song facts on this. Like all of Meatloaf's hits, this was written by pianist Jim Steinman. He said he wrote this to be the ultimate motorcycle crash song. The lyrics refer to a rider being thrown off his bike in a wreck and his organs exposed. And the last thing I see is my heart still beating, breaking out of my body and flying away like a bat out of hell. The song Leader of the Pack, which also featured a motorcycle, was a big influence on this track. The motorcycle sound in the middle of the song is producer Todd Rungan on electric guitar. Todd hated the idea at first, but Steinman begged him until he did that and the subsequent solo in one take. Jim Steinman wrote this song for his stage production, Neverland, which he had been developing since 1975. The play debuted at Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts of Washington, D.C. on April 26, 1977. I'll read the whole stanza instead of just the little piece they gave you there. And it, it's, it's blatantly obvious. You wonder how you could ever miss it. But I know a lot of people when I've talked to them about this song, they have no idea that in the end he dies. But that's what this is about. He says, Then I'm down in the bottom of a pit in the blazing sun. You probably know the words, right? Torn and twisted at the foot of a burning bike. And I think somebody where some, somebody somewhere must be tolling a bell. And the last thing I see is my heart still beating, breaking out of my body and flying away like a bat out of hell. And Neverland was like based on Peter Pan and, and, and stuff like that. I think the play was only ever done once, honestly. But I wanted to give you more on this whole album and how wrong people in charge can be, because that's going to fit actually great with tomorrow's show and what I wanted to kind of tie in with the segment that I skipped doing today's on disruption in the automotive industry and things like that. But here is kind of the, the, the genesis of this album and what it took to make this album that's now so iconic and how wrong people were about it. This is from Wikipedia, and here it is. In 1977, a brief workshop was held for a work-in-progress musical called Neverland. It was based loosely on Peter Pan by Jambari. While preparing the show, Steinman and Meatloaf, who were touring with National Lampoon Show, felt that three songs were exceptional. And Steinman began to develop them as part of a seven-song set they wanted to record as an album. The three songs were Bad Out of Hell, Heaven Can Wait, and the formation of the pack, which was retitled to All Revved Up With No Place To Go. 
The show also contains Simon's Bolero, a.k.a. Great Boleros of Fire, which was later used as many live shows featuring Steinman's work. This is the part you just got to love. Steinman and Meatloaf um, had immense difficulty finding a record company willing to sign them. According to Meatloaf's autobiography, the band spent most of 1975 and two and a half years auditioning Bad Out of Hell and being rejected. CB executive Clive Davis, Clive Davis, guys, okay, even claimed that Steinman knew nothing about writing or rock music in general. Recording started in 1976 in Bearville near Woodstock. After numerous further rejections, the album was released by Cleveland International Records in October 1977. The album was an immediate success in Australia and the United Kingdom, and later in the United States. Reports vary as to how many copies of the album have been sold, but in 2007, Cleveland International Records founder Steve Popovich said it was around 40 million copies. Good job, Clive. Good job, Clive Davis. The highest charting song from the song was Two Out of Three Ain't Bad, which only reached number 11 on the Billboard charts. So the highest-rated song only reached number 11, but the album sold 40 million. You might wonder how that works out. Let me tell you how that works out. I'm going to take you back to Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Jack Spirico has his first car. Yep. It's a 1975 low-lead sled, Pontiac Grand Prix LJ. Awesome car, really, for a kid that bought it with money he made picking copper up out of old mining shacks. And the first thing that happened was the giant AM radio with eight-track tape face was yanked out from under that thing, and that took like an hour to get it out of there. Boy, the way they put I don't know how the hell they put those things in back then, but I remember the misery just to get it out and open up the space. And then from Radio Shack into that space went a 30-watt, I think it was a Kenwood head, we called them, so the, your main taper, and a 100-watt little push-button amp and two nice Kenwood 6x9 speakers in the back of the car. At that point, I had more money in the stereo than I had in the car. And I'm not going to say it was the first one, but with, I guarantee you within the first day we went cruising around in that car, which would have been 1987, that a copy of Bat Out of Hell went click. And you, the, the song that you're about to hear started playing. Okay, 1987 was 10 years after this album came out. And every teenage guy I knew that had a cheap-ass car like I had, that put an expensive stereo in it, had a copy of this album, and when you put that tape in, no one ever complained, no girl complained, no guy complained. Everybody loved listening to this album, and when you put it in, you listen from the first song to the last song. And that's why I say it's one of the most successful albums of all time. There's just not, and, and you still will listen to it. And not just old people. I have played this for younger people. Like, this is great. Who is this guy? It's Meatloaf. No. Yeah. They don't even know. They, they, don't even, they know him from reality TV. They have no idea. It's an incredible, incredible piece of music. The whole song is. But let's start out with this today and just let's just think about all the people that were supposed experts that said it's never going to happen, you don't know what you're doing, it won't work. You know? Think about that in your life as you try to accomplish things. Because I'll tell you what, if I were Clive Davis, I'd have somebody come and kick me in the ass once a day for being dumb enough to turn this down. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. 
helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
like a sinner before the gates of heaven I'll come crawling on back to Breaking. 